From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. This is Neil Strauss, and I'm reading from Everyone Loves You When You're Dead, Journeys into Fame and Madness. I've shot guns with Ludacris, been kidnapped by Courtney Love, made Lady Gaga cry, shopped for Pampers with Snoop Dogg, gone drinking with Bruce Springsteen, tried to prevent Motley Crue from getting arrested, received Scientology lessons from Tom Cruise, flown in a helicopter with Madonna, been taught to read minds by the CIA, soaked in a hot tub with Marilyn Manson, been told off by Prince, and tucked Christina Aguilera into bed. This is my job. Since I was 18, I've been under orders from magazines and newspapers to step into the lives of musicians, actors, and artists and somehow find out who they really are, underneath the mask they present to the public. Yet for two decades, I've been doing it wrong. Newspapers and magazines are service industries, catering to the daily or monthly needs of a public that wants to be told what's new, what they should know about it, and what they should think about it. And in catering to that need, I didn't do justice to reality. Because no matter what happens during an interview, once it ends, a writer's loyalty is to the pressure of an immediate deadline, the style and tone of a publication, and the priorities of an editor. And an editor's loyalty is to a publisher, and a publisher's loyalty is to stockholders and circulation figures and advertising revenue. Somewhere along the way, the subject gets lost. So to put this book together, I went back to my original interview recordings, notes, and transcripts, and selected the best moments from the 3,000-something articles I've written over the years. But instead of looking for the pieces that broke news, or sold the most magazines, or received the best feedback, I searched for the truth or essence behind each person's story or experience. Often it came from something I'd previously ignored, an uncomfortable silence, a small misunderstanding, or a scattered thought that had been compressed into a soundbite. Other times it came from something more dramatic, like an emotional confession, a run-in with the police, or a drug-induced psychosis. Although I spent weeks working on some of these stories, what I realized is that most of the time I was waiting for just one moment of truth or authenticity. After all, you can tell a lot about a person or a situation in a minute, but only if you choose the right minute. Here are a few of them. New Yorkers. Sometimes, if you listen closely, a neighborhood can have just as much of a personality as an individual. I used to live in New York's East Village, but before it was cool and trendy, when it was just dangerous. One night, I heard a guy being held up at gunpoint outside my window. Another night, three guys beat me up just for fun. Those experiences, along with the following things I overheard in the area at the time, contributed to my decision to save up and move to a neighborhood with a more stable personality. The following was overheard on Avenue B, two men talking. Just because I killed someone doesn't mean I'm an expert. Overheard on the same block, a man talking to a woman. I'm not a jealous guy. I'm just violent. Sounds like a keeper, right? Overheard on East 7th Street, a man saying, I'm going to break your face, sucker, to a lamppost. Overheard at the Odessa restaurant near Tompkins Square Park, the owner talking to an anarchist squatter. I think you guys should go start another riot for me. I need the business. Overheard on Avenue A, two well-dressed white men talking. I'm not a racist or anything, but have you ever beaten up an African-American? Like that's going to make it okay if he uses the right PC term. Overheard at the bar 7B, two women talking. 
He's a total fox, so I love him. But he completely has no personality and doesn't speak a word of English. Overheard on a building stoop on East 6th Street, a man talking to the apartment supervisor. You can't always go calling the coroner ten hours afterward. Overheard on Avenue D, two men talking. I don't take a life. I bury a soul. And I don't know what that means, but it's incredibly scary. Question Mark and the Mysterians When it comes to one-hit wonders, the group Question Mark and the Mysterians stands at the head of the pack. In 1966, the band's first single, 96 Tears, came out of nowhere and topped the charts. The organ-drenched song is not only still played on the radio today, but is renowned as a garage rock classic and an important precursor of punk rock. Before this interview, all I knew about the artist known as Question Mark was that he was a skinny, leather-clad Mexican-American who had supposedly never removed his sunglasses since the 60s. You said you originally wanted to be a dancer, so how'd you end up becoming a singer? Question Mark answers. The first time was in Flint, Michigan. I asked if I could do a song after one of my dance routines. Then my parents got me a tape recorder and I started singing songs like 96 Tears into it when I was 10. You composed it when you were 10 years old? Yes. And then I wanted to learn to play an instrument so I could make the music in my head come alive. I went to the music store and this girl said her dad knew how to play piano and could teach me. So I went to the nice side of town. I thought... This is what it must be like to be rich. Everyone wondered what I was doing there. I asked her dad, Could you teach me how to play the music in my head? He said, You've got to go to the beginning with Mary Had a Little Lamb. And I said, I ain't got no time for that. I sang 96 tears for him and he played it. But then he said the lessons would cost $10 a week. So I knew I wasn't going back there. In the back of my head I said, Forget it. But eventually you formed your own band? Question mark answers. Yeah. We recorded with no headphones, no acoustics, no separation. Just a two-track machine. We recorded 96 tears and made up the B-side. I'd remembered a lot of the words I'd written, but I'd forgotten some of them, too. Eight months later, it was number one. How did you end up getting signed? I needed a record label, so I went with Cameo Records, because their records were orange and it's my favorite color. If I'd known the Beatles were on Capitol when they approached me, or Elvis was on RCA, I would have gone with them. And then I got mad and felt like getting off the label when our record came out and it wasn't orange. What do you think of the term garage rock? It was just rock and roll. After 96 Tears, rock and roll died. Hendrix and everyone were great musicians, but they weren't playing rock and roll. They called it rock. So what happened to rock and roll? I call our music the new age of rock and roll. I got ESP too. I don't use it all the time, though. As an extrasensory perception? Yeah, at first the press said I was a gimmick. But how can I be? I'm a real person. I was born on Mars many eons ago. I was around when dinosaurs were around. I've always had dreams of T-Rex chasing me, and he got me. I discovered this week that they just found footprints from when the dinosaurs were around, and they weren't ape footprints. I said, see, I told you I was around then. We hid so we wouldn't get eaten. Since then, I've lived many different lives. And even though I was born on Mars, I'm not an alien. I hate when people call it Mars because it's not really Mars anyway. What is it, then? It's just a planet. Do you know what I'm saying? It's part of the universe. That's man's ignorance. They have to label everything. Who is mankind to do that just because they feel more superior? Why do you never remove your sunglasses? I never take my sunglasses off. Somebody instilled that in me, gave me that power and ability to have that. I have so much knowledge. 
when I return in another life form. I may be a tennis player or a basketball player because I'm very athletic today. How do you know you're going to be reincarnated as a human? Well, I myself am going to come back in the year 10,000, and I'm going to be singing 96 Tears, and people will know it's me in this other body. How will they know? Because I will say a unique phrase that no one in history has said before, and I've only told it to a few people, but for right now I'm just going to rock and roll. Can you tell me the phrase? No. Groupies. When I wrote a book with Dave Navarro, I asked him why he regularly called $2,000 prostitutes to his house when there were countless girls willing to sleep with him for free. I'm not into hurting little girls' feelings anymore, he explained. A hooker is not going to show up on your doorstep at four in the morning saying she just moved from Michigan so she can spend her life with you. From the outside, rockers may seem to live a dream lifestyle when it comes to sexual decadence. But in many cases, the women they sleep with are not just looking for sex, they're looking for something more than that. And a one-night stand can end in theft, a paternity suit, a statutory rape charge, or years of being stalked. At a Grateful Dead show, I interviewed Marta, a petite blonde hippie who shared her experience. Marta, I sort of have a boyfriend in the Grateful Dead. Which member are you dating? I shouldn't be telling you this, but it's Bob Weir. Well, I don't know if it's right to call him a boyfriend. After our last meeting, I went totally crazy. What happened? Well, I first met him after a dead show. I got all dressed up. I mean, super tight pants that just showed off my ass, and this really white, blousy, revealing top. And I danced in the center of the rows on the floor so the band was checking me out and singing songs at me. How did you know that? I just knew. I could feel the energy. So how did you end up meeting Bob? After the show, I waited for a little while in my chair because I knew they were going to send someone out to take me backstage. But security made me move. So I ended up going back to the parking lot. By the time I got out there, someone told me that I'd just missed Bob. So you got all dressed up for nothing. Well, it was meant to happen. Because I met one of their roadies, who took me to a party they were having after the show. I was outside singing and Bob went out to take a piss. So we started talking. And we went back to Bob's place and had fantastic sex four times in the night. When I woke up, Bob wasn't there. So I lit up a cigarette and walked outside, and Bob was sitting there with all these business types. They all saw me standing there naked, and Bob gave me this little smile like he was really getting off on it. Then what happened? I put on my clothes and came back out, and Bob said, really cold, anyone want to give, um, um, he was struggling for my name, and then he got it, Marta, a ride home. I could tell he was really relieved that he remembered my name. I just looked at him and said, you got a light? I said it really tough. I'm sure he didn't expect it. Anyway, no one was going my way. He eventually said to one guy something like, Marta's got a place in Costa Rica. Maybe you can talk to her about that. And I'm like, forget it. So I started to leave and said something cold again. He said, I'll call you at the hotel. I asked him if he wanted the number, and he said he'd look it up. Obviously, he didn't call you. Marta. No, but I saw him again a few months later. It was at this party after a dead show. He was there with all these girls and I was talking to Jerry and getting along. We were really flying, and he asked what I was doing, and I said, waiting for Bob over there. He thought I said bozo, and we started laughing for the longest time because we were so messed up. So then I go to the bathroom, and Bob comes around the corner with these four girls, like, hanging on to him, and the second he sees me, I just get this wave of bad energy, like a literal tidal wave pouring at me, and I'm stunned. I go to the bathroom, and I look at myself in the mirror, and I look horrible, terrible. Did you speak to Bob at all that night? No, we didn't talk, 
After that, I basically stayed at my parents' house for the next six years. I went crazy. Every time I looked in the mirror, I saw the devil. I thought I had the possibility to save the world, and I blew it. Bob was the devil, Jerry was God, and I was the angel. The Mafia In the markets of the small mountain towns surrounding Reggio di Calabria, on the southern tip of Italy, a musician named Mimo Siclari can often be found selling cassettes from the back of his van, as he has for several decades. The tapes, many of which he produces himself, are emblazoned with explicit covers that depict men shot in the heart, grieving widows, and pools of blood. The cassettes themselves are transparent, because only see-through tapes are allowed in prison, where many of the fans of his cassettes can be found. Siclari does not sell gangster rap or heavy metal. He sells folk music, and his cassettes are representative of a very unusual and specific folk tradition, Il Canto di Malavita, which translates literally as songs of a bad life. More colloquially, the songs are known as mafia music. For more than a hundred years, Calabrian mafia members have developed and sung Malavita songs among themselves, traditionally at feasts celebrating the admittance of a new recruit, the release of a member from prison, or after a successful act of vengeance. Whoever took the liberty to neglect their duties, I'll slaughter him like an animal, run the lyrics to one song. And if someone dares to talk, I'll wet my knife for him. I traveled to Calabria and visited with various mafia dons to learn about the tradition. Before the first interview, however, my guide, Francesco Spano, laid down some ground rules. Ground rules and orientation. One, do not mention the names of the villages I take you to or identify the people you interview. Two, you may take notes, but you cannot use tape recorders or cameras. Three, we will be controlled from the beginning to the end of the trip. They will know where we get our lunch, where we get our dinner, and where we sleep. Four, we will meet a lot of people, and you will never know whether most of them are mafia members or not. They are just people of respect. Five, this is very important to me. I'm not married, but I have a big family. There will be consequences if an interview or article does not go well. Interview number one. We meet Mimo Siclari at a market where he's selling cassettes. Though he doesn't appear to be in the mafia, he's largely responsible for the spread of its music outside the ranks of the mob, thanks to his tireless dedication to discovering and reconstructing the songs. Often, he was not allowed to record or transcribe the lyrics when they were recited by mafia members so he would remember as much as he could and piece each composition together from several different people's memories. What drew you to this music? Mimo Siclari. It was a beautiful world because of the idea of respect and honor. And once I found a tape of Fred Scotti, and it sold very well, I knew it was possible to sell this type of music, so I searched for more. And Fred Scotti is one of the most famous Malavita singers who, as is appropriate for the job, was uh, killed for his interest in a mob member's girlfriend. How did you first hear it? One day, a man asked me something in the special language of the Mafia. What did he ask you? He asked me under whom I was working, and I was astonished to discover through him, and then through others, that these songs, these words, were a reality. I discovered that the songs were speaking about true life, about a world where the people get their rights by fighting against a government that is just a ghost. I perfected the music and put everything in rhyme, and the people were excited when they discovered the authenticity. 
interview number two. In the hills outside Reggio di Calabria, a long table is set up in a secluded clearing where a mafia feast is in progress. Some 30 men dine on wine, meat, and cheese as musicians perform Malavita music on guitar, percussion, and a bagpipe-like instrument made from a goat skin and played by blowing into the leg. One man in particular stands out, dancing, playing the goat skin, and telling stories. Spano explains that this is a mafia don who's 76 and legendary for having been the only mob member to escape a raid during which nearly 60 others were arrested. To my surprise, the musical Don agrees to an interview, but only on condition of anonymity. As soon as it comes time to talk, however, the garrulous old man suddenly has nothing to say. How did you first hear Malavita music? I don't know Malavita music. But you were playing the music just now. I have never heard of Malavita music before, just Tarantella, which is traditional dance music. Okay, I get it. Is this how you survive for so long in this world? Next question. The following interview with some of the other musicians doesn't go much better. Evidently, the only people who ask these men questions are the police and informers. Do you ever worry about your association with the mafia? The mafia musician answers, It is safer this way. If someone steals my car, I go to the boss, not the police. And what happens to the person who stole your car? Where do you live? In America? Where? Um, New York? But what address? What do you want to find that for? I visit New York a lot. Maybe I will come see you. Other mafia musician. A visit like this. Interview number three. The following afternoon, Spano drives to an ice cream shop in a nearby village, where we meet the head of a local mafia family who is identified as one of the number two men in the region's mob hierarchy. He wears champion brand shorts and has a tattoo on his leg of a snake wrapped around a dagger and a skull. How important is the music to you? The mafia guy answers. The music is a very important tradition for the people. It's like pasta. The mafia without the music is like dishes of pasta without salt. The salt is the music of the mafia. From what I understand, the songs aren't just music, I ask him. They're a way to communicate messages and teachings. He responds. The songs are in code. Like hearing about a boat with five plus seven on it means five members and seven rules of society. Everything is code. When the mafia gets a new member, every jail gets a telegraph. The telegraph says that a new flower has been born and gives the special name of the flower. So everyone hearing his name knows who he is if he comes to jail. And uh, what does your tattoo signify? If you see a snake, it means that you know the language of snakes, the language of honor. The skull means that you're not afraid to die. At this point, his phone rings. The ringtone is the Michael Jackson song, Smooth Criminal. Johnny Cash. There are some interviews that you look back on after the artist has died, and they bring tears to your eyes. Tears that, like Johnny Cash's life in music, are both joyful and tragic. I notice that when you sing about sin, it's usually followed by guilt and redemption. Do you think that's always how it works? Johnny Cash responds, I see that in my life a whole lot stronger than I guess a lot of people do, because I've been through so much, and I walked lightly and poetically on the dark side, often throughout my life. But the redeeming love and the grace of God was there, you know, to pull me through, and that's where I am right now, redeemed. But I don't close the door on that dark past or ignore it, because there is that beast in me, and I gotta keep him caged, 
or he'll eat me alive. I ask, a lot of times people think that the idea of the man in black is nihilistic, but there's a positive side to it as well. Johnny Cash, that's the whole thing. I've not been obsessed with death. I've been obsessed with living. It's the battle against the dark one, which is what my life is about, and a clinging to the right one. But you know, I've, uh, in 88, when I had bypass surgery, I was as close to death as you could get. I mean, the doctors were saying they were losing me, and I was going. And there was that wonderful light that I was going into. It was awesome, indescribable, beauty and peace, love and joy. And then all of a sudden, there I was again, all in pain and awake. I was so disappointed. Disappointed? Johnny Cash. I realized a day or so later what point I'd been to, and then I started thanking God for life. You know, I used to think only of life, but when I was that close to losing it, I realized it wasn't anything to worry about when that does happen. So, did you always believe that when you die, you go somewhere else? Yeah, but I didn't know it was going to be that beautiful. I mean, it's indescribably wonderful, whatever there is at the end of this life. To subscribe to The Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.